Amen. Well, this past week as I was preparing the message, I thought it'd be interesting to research some of the ways that scientists have sought to control the weather. And so I Google searched this, and much to my surprise, there were all kinds of results. Uh, For instance, there is an experiment that is going on right now known as cloud seeding. Is anyone familiar with cloud seeding? We had some people familiar with that in the last one. All right, we got a few. So basically what happens is, is you fly aircraft over a town that's experiencing drought, and that aircraft shoots flares into the clouds. It disperses chemicals, and those chemicals produce precipitation, and it will begin to rain. It hadn't worked that well, so they're still working on it. Uh, But I thought that was pretty neat. There were some other ones that I saw. For instance, there are scientists backed by NASA who are researching ways to dump massive amounts of dry ice into the eye of a hurricane. And in doing so, when all that cool air goes into that eye, it will eventually cause the eye to get bigger and bigger, thus causing the hurricane to collapse. Pretty neat. Hasn't worked yet. In the 70s, they thought, man, we could take mobile microwave systems and blast beams of energy at tornadoes. And the hope, of course, is in doing so, you would redirect the path of the tornado. Well, unfortunately, it has not worked. But as I continued looking through Google at some of the ways to manipulate weather, much to my surprise, because the internet is always true, I came across a website that can actually let you, yes, you, control the storms. You ready for it? You got your pens and your your papers out? All right, here's what you do. Spellsofmagic.com is where you go. And this is what you say, and I quote, wind, water, fire, and earth. Please make it stop raining. Water, stop dropping your drops. Wind, stop blowing your blow. And please do this now as I have said so. And then it says this. Now imagine the rain stopping and the sun coming out. This works 95% of the time. So if it doesn't work for you, you're just in that 5%. So, So try it whenever you get home. Like most of you, I'm assuming you've probably never met someone who can actually control the weather. But as we come to our passage this morning, we discover that the disciples experienced just that. But in this situation, what we find is the disciples don't watch Jesus operate a small aircraft and shoot flares into clouds. We don't watch, or they didn't watch Jesus shoot microwavable energy at the path of a tornado. Instead, what we see in Mark chapter 4 is Jesus stands face to face with a violent storm and with the sound of his voice, the wind, the rain dies down. It is absolutely incredible. And what Mark is really dealing with here is an issue concerning authority. It has to do with the authority of Christ. Now, to bring you up to speed, since chapter 1, it's important for you to understand that this, this subject of authority keeps popping back up. So at the beginning of chapter 1, you have the the crowds, you have the religious leaders just blown away by the authority of Jesus' preaching. Like Jesus doesn't just quote from old rabbis, Jesus doesn't speak in a monotone voice, Jesus preaches with passion, and it's almost as if the truths come from himself. So they're blown away by his preaching, but as the, the chapters continue, we see a demonstration of his authority concerning the spiritual realm. So he's not just preaching, but with the sound of his voice, he's actually engaging with demonic spirits that are far more powerful than any of us, and as he tells them to leave those whom they have possessed, they obey. So there's authority in his preaching. There's authority over the spiritual realm, but as it continues, we see there is even authority over sickness. 
over disease. With the sound of his voice, fevers leave people's bodies. The sound of his voice, the lame are able to walk. With the touch of a hand, leprosy is able to be gone. And what we would eventually see as we continue reading the Gospels is that he will even bring a dead person back to life. When we come to Mark chapter 4, we see yet again another demonstration of authority. But this time it's not in regards to preaching. It's not over the spiritual realm. This time it's not over sickness and disease. This time, with the end of Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus' authority over nature. And if we're really trying to, to flesh out what it is that Mark is trying to communicate, what we'll discover is, is that when a person submit them, submits themselves to Jesus Christ, that they are not submitting to just simply an intelligent thinker. They're not submitting themselves to a religious nut. They are submitting themselves to God himself. And that has all sorts of implication. And we're going to flesh it out with the text this morning. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the passage. I'm going to kind of flesh the narrative out for you, and then we're going to take a couple of points of application. So as we begin, notice with me in verse 35. Mark tells us, he says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, if you continue reading, when you get to chapter 5, you see that when they get to the other side, they're in a land of the Gerasenes. Now, if that is the case, then we know that the sea that they're on, geographically, is the Sea of Galilee. Now, here's what you've got to know about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level. It's kind of in, in like a basin. So as you're journeying on this grand lake, this sea, you've got hills and mountains surrounding the sea. Some of those mountains reach almost as high as 9,200 feet above sea level. So if you're a weather junkie, when all that cool air and all that warm air meet together, it is not going to make for a happy sailing, right? It's going to be very, it's a recipe for disaster. All kinds of things can happen. The fishermen, who of course were the disciples, pro-fishermen, were familiar with this. They were aware of this. Jesus knew of this. Everyone knew the reputation that the Sea of Galilee had. Nevertheless, what does Jesus do? Let's go to the other side. Never mind the fact that it's evening, that it's getting dark. I mean, it's not like if you watch the deadliest catch and you got all the lights on the boats. None of that's here. Let's just hop on the boat and let's just see what happens. Let's just go across. Sure enough, verse 37, text tells us, and a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. That word windstorm there can literally be translated hurricane. Uh, the NIV uses the word squall. That's a good Yuli, Florida word. A squall came up. And as this boat is filling with water because the waves are crashing over it, you've got the disciples fighting this storm as hard as they can. Look what verse 38 says Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't on the top of the boat chipping in. Jesus isn't at the, the, the steering wheel trying to, to really navigate the waters with the ship. Verse 38 tells us, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Now think about that for a second. You're like, what? Like Jesus knew what was going to happen. The disciples knew this could possibly happen. 
And rather than actually be up on top of the deck with them, instead, he's sleeping. And he's not just sleeping like with his head kind of raised up against the, the side of the boat. He is literally on his side. And I love how Mark emphasizes that he's on a cushion. Like he's got to get comfortable, right? What we're seeing here in this narrative is not just a demonstration of authority, anything like that. The first thing we see with a passage like this is we're seeing a demonstration of Jesus' humanity. We see that he gets tired, just like we do. That he got hungry, just like we do. And you've got to think about the type of day that Jesus had. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus has been preaching until the paint peels off the walls. Like, he is just laying it down. There is massive crowds. He steps into a boat, pushes himself off to be able to preach. And as he's preaching throughout the day, he's not preaching in an AC room like we're in today. Like, he's preaching out in the sun. He might be sunburnt. He's exhausted. It's been going on all day long. So he has every right to be tired, wouldn't you say? He's exhausted by this, but he's sawing logs at this point as this storm is raging. Does anybody sleep like that? Like you can sleep through a freight train? Anybody that? Yeah, we've got a few in here. I'm that way. Uh, my wife can hear a subtle whimper from one of our children in a dead sleep and wake up. Anyone like that? I'm not that way. Like not even close. I'm the sleep through a freight train type guy. I guess you could say that I'm a little bit more like Jesus. Because this is how Jesus was. This is what he's doing. And listen to the response from the disciples. As verse 38 continues, it says, He's in the stern, he's sleeping on a cushion, and immediately they wake him. So they were up at the top, they're fighting the storm, they've got buckets of water just trying to get it out of the boat, and someone says, where's Jesus? Did he fall off the side of the boat? Was he trying to help and we just can't see him in the dark? And someone goes, no, I know exactly where he is. Go down to the stern and see where he's at. So they go down there, they see him, and they begin to shake him, and they say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? In other words, don't you care that we're about to drown? I mean, just shocked by the fact that Jesus, knowing that this could have possibly happened, that this is what the Savior, the so-called Messiah, is doing. They accuse him of not caring. In one sense, you might feel a little frustrated with these guys. I mean, how could they talk to Jesus like this? I mean, this is the one who preaches with passion, with boldness. This is the one who has authority over the spiritual realm. This is the one who has authority over sickness and death. But think about the time of ministry or the time that they've had with Jesus. Up to this point, they've never found themselves in harm's way. They've never found themselves going through something extremely terrifying, difficult. But the moment that things get a little bit rocky, all of a sudden we see the disciples' true colors. All of a sudden we see that the disciples are wrestling with a faith in this Messiah. Now look at verse 39. Verse 39 tells us that when Jesus wakes from this, he doesn't engage in debate. He doesn't rebuke the disciples immediately. He doesn't go back and forth with them. It simply says that he wakes up. So he he gets up, he wipes what my mother always called the sleepies out of his eyes. 
His hair is a mess. He has no shoes on. He goes to the top of the boat. He goes to the side of it. He holds his hands up and he says, Peace be still. Now think about that for a second. If there was a huge storm that was coming our way and we were all sitting in here and someone said, I'll take care of it. And they walked outside and they held their hands up and they said, peace be still. Would you submit to them as Lord? No. You would be sending them to the closest mental asylum, right? Listen, this is why C.S. Lewis says that Jesus would have had to have been either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Because nobody, no ordinary man is going to stand beside a boat, hold your hands out, and say, peace, be still. But that's exactly what Jesus does. With confidence, with faith, he says, peace, be still. And look at the end of verse 39. Sure enough, the wind ceases, and there's a great calm. Like, I love the language that's used here. Because it's not just that the wind stops. Right When a storm stops, oftentimes, the waters are still choppy. Things are still white-capping, but that's not what it says happens here. Kind of like in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy's in the house and it's spinning like crazy, right? And all of a sudden it just stops and everything's super quiet. All of a sudden the wind ceases. The water turns to glass and Jesus turns around. I, I, I love verses 39 through 41. Because really what you're seeing with Jesus is it's, it's very similar to a parent who is struggling with a child that's unruly. You ever, you ever see this happen? Uh, this weekend we were doing back-to-school shopping. We saw a lot of this. And we saw a lot of parents freaking out as well. But as the, the kid is just throwing a fit, you, you have the parent that's going, oh, please, and you're trying to, to converse with the person, please, and trying to reason with the kid, and they're freaking out, and they're kicking, and they're pushing, and they're saying no over and over again. But then dad walks in, or grandma, or mom. They walk in, and they say, shut your mouth, and let's go. And what does the kid do? Yes, sir. The disciples are the parent dealing with an unruly storm, trying to do everything they can to get control. And Jesus comes out, and he looks to the storm, and he says, shut your mouth, be still. And the storm says, yes, sir. And with verse 40, it says that he turns around, and he asks the disciples, why are you so afraid? Like, you still don't have faith? After all of the things that you've seen, why are you still afraid? And verse 41 tells us that the disciples do not break out in celebration. They don't fall down at this moment and begin giving all sorts of praise. Verse 41 tells us, filled with great fear, they say to one another, who is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him, I'll tell you who it is. It is no ordinary man. It is the divine Son of God, who Hebrews 1 tells us that simply by the power of his word, all of creation is sustained, 
who said, let there be light, and light said, yes, sir, and actually came into existence, who created all things, including me and you, and now the disciples find themselves standing in the very presence of God. That's who this is. And I think about a passage like this, and I ask myself constantly, how can preachers, how can sermon after sermon focus solely upon the storms of life and focus solely upon all the things that we struggle with when ultimately what Mark is trying to convey that who it is that we put our faith in, that we trust, the point of this text is that it is God Himself. That it is the Son of God who found it necessary to even come to this earth and do this miracle right here. The point of this text is that we serve a Savior who is not just an ordinary man, who's not just an encouraging speaker, but who is God. And He expects nothing less. Anyone who would suggest to you that the Scriptures, that Jesus is an ordinary man, has not paid attention to Scripture. Because the Scripture identifies Him exactly as that. So it leads me to ask two questions. If we flesh the text out and we see very interesting things in this passage, then the two questions that need to be asked is this. Number one, why is his humanity so important? Why would Mark emphasize the fact that Jesus was on this cushion? That Jesus was exhausted? That Jesus was asleep. Why is the humanity of Christ important? Here's why the humanity of Christ is important. Because we serve a Savior who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's why. We serve a Savior who is not just observing us from afar and and going, oh, that's got to hurt. I hate to be in that situation. But instead, we serve a Savior who goes, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. We serve a Savior who grieves with us because He Himself grieved. We we serve a Savior who's not the know-it-all at the party that always seeks to offer advice when it's never asked. Right? I'm just going to be honest with you for a second. You probably can't tell this because of my amazing physique, but I struggle with eating well. Like, I just, I'm just not good at, at eating good. Mike knows this. Mike will try to hold me accountable. 15 minutes later, he'll say, let's go to Tijuana Flats and eat tacos. That's, that's fine. <laughs> but the moment that I really decide, all right, let's, let's grab the bull by the horns. Like, let, let's go to the gym. Let's hire a, a personal trainer. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not going to hire someone that looks like me. Right? You wouldn't hire someone that looks like me. You might work alongside people that look like me and try to hold one another accountable, but I'm going to go for the guy who says, your name's Ryan Mason. When I get done with you, you're going to look like Ryan Gosling. <laughs> look at me. I'm going to go with a guy who's gone through it, who's struggled maybe with eating bad in the past, and who has disciplined himself and worked through the pain and has the results. This is Jesus. Jesus has gone through the things that we experience. And it's so wonderful to know. You say, how so? You ever been betrayed? You ever had a spouse betray your trust? Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest disciples. Jesus tells his disciples, I am just overwhelmed right now. I need you to stay awake. 
I need you to stay by my side. They say, we'll stay by your side. And the moment he gets arrested, they leave. Jesus was betrayed by a nation that God himself referred to as his own bride. He suffered the loss of a loved one. Jesus wept over the loss of life with Lazarus. Broken over this, recognizing what sin and death has done in a fallen world, that it wasn't supposed to be this way. Struggle with acceptance. Jesus, some of his own family rejected him as Messiah. Told people he's crazy. We don't know what's up with Jesus. And all the while, rather than focusing on who he is and what he has gone through, we ask the question that the disciples ask time and time again. Don't you care? Don't you care what I'm going through? Don't you care that my spouse has betrayed my trust? Like, don't you care that, that, that all of my hopes and dreams of pursuing a, a specific career or pursuing a specific degree, that, that none of it happened and it's fallen by the wayside, it just seems like nothing's working out? Don't you even care? You find yourself asking that? Don't you care that I've had to bury my husband or bury my wife or bury my... Don't you care that I can't have children? Don't you care? And all the while, Christ is saying, oh, I care. Because Hebrews 4.15 tells us, speaking of Christ, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And even upon experiencing death and pain, as Jesus is resurrected from the dead and ascends to the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father, as he's interceding on our behalf day in and day out, he's saying to the Father, I know what it's like. I know what they're going through. This is the Savior that we have. Oh, how good is this? That God is not satisfied with us just going through this stuff that he's never experienced, but Jesus has experienced it all. Oh, it's so good. It should cause us to worship him more. So we answer the question, why is the humanity so important? And that's just one of the reasons why the humanity of Christ is important. But the second question that we have to ask is, why is his divinity important? All right, we understand that, it, that we have a, a Messiah, we serve a Savior who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but why is the divinity so important? Here's the answer. Because we don't just serve a Savior who can sympathize with our weaknesses, we serve a Lord who's sovereign over all things. And how good is that? That we don't have a God who's wringing his hands on a throne going, I hope this works out. Like, what's wonderful about a passage like this, has it ever occurred to you, as Adrian Rogers says, that nothing has ever occurred to God? That, that nothing shocks him, nothing surprises him, that he is fully aware and he has even orchestrated all of the things that we're going through to take place, why? So that when it's all said and done, he might be glorified so that he might make you more mature and complete, conform more into the image of Christ so that you can make much more of him. The divinity is so important because he's sovereign. And, and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? 
Why didn't you have, you still don't have faith? Are you serious? Don't you know who I am? Oh, how often am I prone to wander and do the same thing? How often do I find myself doubting? And so often I find myself saying, man, I am, I, I, I put all my hope and my trust in making sure my, my house is intact and that everything, there's security and that the finances are good and, and if we have material things, we'll be good. And, and in all that, I'm saying, oh, I got faith. I got faith. And the moment things get rocky, I just buckle. You ever do that? As one theologian says, that the strength is not found in our actual faith, but it's actually found in the object of our faith. That, that when the finances aren't well, that I'm still keeping my eyes fixed on Christ because I'm fully aware and confident that he knows what he's doing. Like, like some of you are going through things right now because of consequences of sin. Like you've made mistakes. You've done things you shouldn't have done. But praise God that you're going through these difficulties because the Bible tells us that he disciplines those whom he loves. And this is why James will say in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy when trials of all kinds come our way. Like That's insanity to the outside world. But he says, consider it joy. Why? Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That all these things are taking place so that you can persevere. Was that the end goal? No, because as he continues, he says, so that you would become mature and complete, so that you can rely fully upon God, so that you can say with confidence, as Romans 8, 28 says, that we know all things, not just the good, but also the bad, that all of these things work for the good of those who love him. That's why we keep doing it. We don't serve a mediocre creator. Like he's not half sovereign. I love it. You ever see the, the AT&T commercials where they say, you know, just decent service isn't enough. Like, okay service isn't enough. So the surgeon walks into the patient's room getting ready for surgery and he shouts out to the nurses, guess who just got reinstated? And he looks to the patient and he says, are you nervous? The patient says, yeah. He goes, yeah, me too. We'll figure it out. That's not God. That's not God rolling dice and just seeing how things will play out. God is orchestrating all things, both good and even the things that Satan is seeking to do for your bad, and he's bringing it for good. Life is overwhelming at times. Life is difficult. But we serve a Savior who's able to sympathize with us. We serve a sovereign ruler who is fully aware of what you're going through. And all of these things, both the good and bad, are going to work out for the good. Some of that good may not happen for you until you die and meet him. The good doesn't mean that all of a sudden, if you have enough faith, that your, your finances will be better. That if you have enough faith, then, then your wife will come back because of a mistake maybe you made. That, that if you have enough faith that, it, that all of a sudden like, you'll get the new car and, and, and your kids will, will stay in the faith and they won't rebel. Like, no. It's much more than that. Which is why we are called to press on. It's why we, as we 
stay faithful as we think about all things working together for the good that we can say, and this is my prayer for this church, that we can say, Romans 8, 35, that based on the fact that all things will work together for the good, based on the fact that God has pursued me relentlessly and has called me to himself, that we can ask the question that Paul asked, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, shall trouble? Shall hardship? Shall persecution? Shall famine? Shall nakedness? Shall danger? Shall sword? And the answer is found in verse 37. What's his answer? No. He says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ. That's our God. That's the gospel that we hold to. Let me just say this this morning. If you are an unbeliever, the comfort that we find in Jesus taking human form and being able to sympathize with our weaknesses and the comfort we have of God being sovereign over all things, those are good things for believers. But for you, if you're an unbeliever, that right now in this moment is not for you. You're not a believer. But the good news of the gospel is, is you can be. And for an unbeliever, here's why the humanity of Christ is so important. Because Jesus willingly emptied himself of all glory and majesty of the position that he had in heaven, and he comes down to the earth, and he takes on human flesh, and he lives the life that you and I were not able to live. He's the perfect man. He's the second and better Adam, who never gives in to temptation. And this Savior who lives a perfect life as a human being who struggles with tiredness at times and hunger willingly takes himself to a cross to allow the greatest storm to fall upon him. All of God's wrath, all of God's punishment is poured out on him. Not because of any sins he committed, but because of all the sins that we have committed. And the good news of the gospel is, is when we recognize that, that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, and that we're in desperate need of a Savior, that we can look to Christ and we can say what He did on the cross through His resurrection, that it is enough. If you trust in that, if you confess your sins, the Bible says He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all righteousness, and you can be saved. That's the good news of the gospel important for you as we close to understand this. As you walk through this life, you have a Savior who gets it. Who knows what's going on. And in the midst of getting it, as He's grieving with you, you serve a sovereign ruler who is fully in control of all things. And nothing is one... If anything one-upped Him, He's not God. He's the sovereign creator. And if that's the truth, then here's what you can say. You can say this, I'm convinced that no messy divorce, nor poor health, nor death of a loved one, nor financial collapse, nor depression, or loneliness, nor feelings of inadequacy or insecurity can ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Is that your prayer, church? Oh, may it be. Let's pray. Father in heaven.